The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder-owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, hand-crafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're speaking with Terrence Houston. How are you doing today, Terrence? I am doing fabulous. It's a great day to be alive and I'm thankful. So first question, why West Point? Great question. I think it really simply starts with in high school when I had an opportunity to think about my future a lot of it came down to sports and academics. I was very good at sports. I wanted to play football. And a lot of the schools that I went to, I had a full ride to Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech, Florida A&M. And I remember this very clearly. I went to Virginia Tech and had my visit. And Coach Beamer was there at the time. He's one of those longstanding coaches there. And long story short is I get to talk to him at the end of the visit and he's, Hey, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be an engineer. And he gave me a look like, all right, it's Virginia tech and uh, engineering's hard here. And I kind of chuckled and I said, well, thanks for the advice. But after that, it kind of left me with a bad taste in my mouth. Well, you know, I want to go someplace, but I still, you know, I kind of knew the odds coming out of high school, you know, everybody thinks they're great, but you know, you know, one, only one or 2% actually make it to the league. And even then your career is only a couple of years. And with that, I knew I wanted to have at least a degree and I wanted my school pay for. And back then in recruiting, if you got hurt while you were on the team, they could easily take your scholarship the next year and give it to someone else. And so ultimately what it came down to was understanding that I wanted a place that I could get out of Georgia. I wanted a place where I could get an engineering degree because I knew I wanted to be an engineer. But also I think it was the fascination that while I had some distant relatives that were in the military, it was the fascination with going to a school of that kind of caliber and the challenge of it that really excited me. I think that's what it really came down to is the challenge, the process, the people, and going somewhere unknown, far away where I can um, establish myself for who I am. So that's what I think it really came down to. 
Now, did West Point recruit you? Did they send a coach? Did they send flyers? How did that oh. get on your radar? Oh, yeah. So it was an interesting question. So when I was in high school, you know, as we all do, we have a very self-inflated view of ourselves. So I, I was having a very good year athletics-wise, but I was also having a very good year academics-wise. In the middle, I believe, of my junior year, I took the ASVAB and did scored very well. I also was in a program here in Georgia called the Governor's Honors Program, which is one of the top academic programs. And they take kids from all over the state in a particular subject. And you spend the summer at a particular school in Georgia and you go through that and have a great time. And coming out of that, I got my first full ride, academic ride to, to FAMU. And then some other letters started coming in the fall. But it's interesting, the West Point guy shows up at my door and knocks on the door. And I think he, I have no clue, you know, I'm a, a dumb high school guy. And I'm thinking he's like the regular recruiter from down the street. <laughs> Had no clue, man. I was like, okay, yeah, you can come and talk to me and my family. That's cool. And my mom was like, you know, what's going on? You in trouble? You know, <laughs> no, I'm not in trouble. And when they, you know, finally, you know, gave the pitch and gave the understanding of things, you know, at first I was kind of laid back, but you know, what, what I think really intrigued me when I did my own research was that it was a place that had a great history. It was a place that in interestingly enough, my, uh, a large part of my family lived in Boston, Massachusetts, and that's where I was born, but I moved to Atlanta when I was eight and grew up here. And so having an opportunity to go back into the Northeast, I knew the prestige of going to the school. But ultimately, I struggled that my senior fall year, I think it came down to signing day. And I was like, okay, I got to make a choice here. And I really was torn between Georgia Tech and West Point. And at that moment, I, it came down to that week. And I didn't tell anybody, but I had chosen West Point because I felt like it was time for me to get out of Georgia. And it was time to go to a place that was really going to challenge me. And I was really excited about, <laughs> you know, it's funny, the small things, right? I didn't like the Navy because you was on a boat and I couldn't, you know, at the time I had pretty good sight, but I, I was like, yeah, I didn't really want to be flying anything. It, you know, in a simple kind of way, I, I started eliminating any other services and West Point was like the, the spot, right? So I could play football. I could do engineering. I didn't have to worry about um, losing my scholarship if I got hurt or anything else like that. And I could be, and if I had support, not necessarily around the corner, but if I needed to, I could drive to my grandmother's who was about eight hours away, you know, in Boston. And so that to me was like, everybody was like, okay with that. If I had left and went to California or Texas or Virginia, everybody's old oh boy, you know, you go off and you don't know what's going to happen. You, you can't get protected that way. And those are the kind of influences I had at the time. Unbeknownst to me, my neighbor, my next door neighbor worked at Fort McPherson. He was a former military vet retiree who is now a civilian contractor. And I had no idea that at the time he was the one who called and let them know, Hey, you got a good one down here. Right. Wow. That's <laughs> cool. And so that's when I, you know, God's doing his thing, man, in terms of just lining it up. But at the time I had no clue. I was just like, all right, well, you know, thank you for coming by. <laughs> now did West Point ask you to go to the preparatory school to put on weight to, to start learning the system? Cause oh, I know yeah. that's kind of like a ramp up. Or did oh, yeah. you go straight into the school? No, I, I, I chose prep school just for what you were talking about, right? I wanted to be good. I wanted to be big. I wanted to be fast. But also, to be quite frank, 
while I did well in my school, I recognized that Georgia didn't always have the greatest reputation for the greatest school systems. And I was a public school kid and everything else like that. And so I took um, all, you know, AP classes and stuff like that. But I, I was like not opposed to the give me more year of math and science so I can make sure I get through this thing. Because I knew um, how difficult it was going to be from the stories I've heard from many people around. There's a lot of people from Georgia that, that went to West Point in the sense that once you get a part of the community, they give you the real kind of background on it. Because once I got interested, I was getting information from everybody. What was the preparatory school for you like? What was it like? You know, I think it was, for me, it was the first time that I got to meet people from all walks of life. And I'm, you know, I'm from Georgia. I'm not, I'm not from the backwoods of Georgia. I don't mean that as a slight, but, uh, you know, I, I lived in the big city. I lived in Atlanta, so I knew, but, you know, it's still kind of culturally segregated in a lot of different ways. And so for me growing up, I went to a predominantly African-American high school, predominantly African-American. And just for me, it was the opportunity to get to learn and, and integrate myself into what is this thing called military life? And that's exactly what it, it opened my eyes. It got me stronger. It got me to a place where I was able to have some friends rolling in. And by the time I got to our day, man, I, you know, I was at ease, you know, all the pressure and the nervousness of going through a process and being broken down at, at that point, being, being able to play, being able to have real drill sergeants and then have real school and then having to take the SAT all over again and going. And we, and at that time we were in New Jersey. We were, it wasn't even at West Point at that time. So, you know, so dating myself. So it was back in New, you know, New Jersey, Monmouth and you know, some old barracks, but man, the, the friendships, the, the relationships just priceless for me. It's what kept me around when times got tough, to be quite frank, because I had a built-in community of people that I had spent a year with already before I got to West Point which made it palatable to me on those cold nights. You talk through how relaxed or prepared you were for our day. When did the, when did that process of either going into the preparatory school or going into West Point, when did you feel the first big challenge? Like you questioned, can I do this? It was interesting. A couple months before I get to, um, our day. You know, you essentially, anybody who goes to preparatory school is not necessarily guaranteed a spot. You still kind of, you, you're, you have a, what I call a first rights of refusal when it comes to the West Point. They look at the prep school first in terms of um, integrating into the class, but it's not guaranteed. And so it was interesting. We lost a few of our um, prep, prep guys that year. And one of the things that I realized was like, man, I really could just go home and go to Japan. <laughs> life would be so much easier. And I had that moment of struggle. Like I said, it, you know, growing in the South, you know, I, I, it's been a while. It had been like since I was eight years old, but when I had to do a full winter up in the Northeast and having to deal with the cold and the ice and all of that. And I was like, oh man, this is different and everything. But I think that was kind of the first crisis of, of conscience. I say was those cold winter months at, at prep school. And after coming out of that, it was like, you know what? I've done this. I've gone this far. 
if I don't go now, what was all the point of it? Right. So I had to have that moment of growing up and making decisions for myself, which was uh, interesting to see, you know, looking back now, uh, it was difficult in the sense of seeing myself and saying, it was as simple as I didn't want to let my friends down that I had made. I didn't want to go home and have my family think, yeah, I knew you couldn't make it. You know, simple thoughts like that. But that was my thinking pattern. It was like, I didn't want to be embarrassed and be the guy who, you know, tried to shoot for the stars and couldn't hack it. So sometimes it's the fear of failure that kind of drives you at, at, as well as the, you know, the want to do well. It's, it's crazy how some of those little things can drive you nuts. When I was enlisted and I was going through basic training, I was in South Carolina and I was on the last field problem. And, and the first, the previous six, seven weeks of basic training wasn't that bad because it was all this one element at a time. And I remember it was like the third day of the field training exercise. I was sitting in a foxhole. It was my third day of trying to shave camo off my face and then reapply the camo. And yep, yep. I'm sitting there and I was like, what the heck am I doing? This is, right. I mean, I, it, I was just so ticked off at this disposable razor <laughs> and right. shaving the camo off my face and then, then immediately <laughs> reapplying it. And like, this is stupid. And exactly. I'm so happy the army moved away from camouflage. <laughs> yes. Oh man. We but like you said, jungles, but it, yeah, you know, this, that was part of it. But go ahead and finish your thought. Uh, like you said, it's that fear of failure and, and the fear of having to return back to home with, did I really, truly put everything into this dream? And that moment of weakness passes and, and, you, and you just keep moving forward. Yeah, I think it's very formative. And I, in the sense that it was the first time you get challenged in a way that you've never been before. And you start to realize, okay, I am human. I know your self-perception of yourself in high school is, is pretty good. But for most of us, we all have our own infallible moments, right? You know, but you get talked up to a point and then you start to believe the hype. And then you get out, like you said, out into those woods and into those cold days and nights. And it's, I don't know what my thinking pattern was going on when I first decided to do this. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting how your body adapts and how your mind is the crucial kind of moment where you, that fight or flight kind of reflex kicks in, man. Talk me through the first year at West Point, that plebe year and what that was like for you. I call first year push-up year. <laughs> I did a lot of push-ups, man. I, you know, as I was in A4, I was in Apache and I was out there in, in, in good old Mac on the second floor. And I loved it because I wasn't necessarily in the middle of everything, but coming down from the hill from practice, you're tired. And then you almost got to put on, I call it like a game of faces. You would have this face on, you're pinging everywhere. You're trying to learn what you need to learn and get where you need to be at the right time and on time in the right uniform. But also you got the pressure of trying to make a team, of trying to impress your coaches, trying to impress your teammates. You know, hey, I'm, I'm meant to be here. I'm, I'm meant to do this. And, and what, you end up, what you end up finding is that you can't do it all well. And so I remember that year doing a lot of push-ups. It was like one step too late here or showing up a little bit late there because I just had to get one last bite to eat or I had to do this last problem set before I turned in my work. And it was just this feeling of being like one step behind on everything. And I was just, and I call it the year of doing push-ups, man. <laughs> Did a lot of push-ups. 
but it was good. It was good. I had some really great roommates. I remember Lloyd Bowman and he was from a part of the country. You know, I always laugh. I think me and Boyd had so much culture exchange that, that year, <laughs> you know, he was an academic and not necessarily a social guy at that point in his life. And I was complete opposite. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do whatever I gotta do wherever I gotta be, but you know, this is just work. And so that exchange was a lot of fun, man. I tell you, we got to know each other very well. And, you know, I appreciate it even to this day because I, I recognize at that point, you know, you don't have to like everybody, but it's good to get to know everybody. And I think that was an important learning lesson too, right? It's coming from these backgrounds that we come from. We all kind of bring something to the table, but I kind of had my social groups, you know, I, human nature, we all find our groups, our communities, right? For me, between sports, National Society of Black Engineers, these are all kind of like those first year, okay, what am I going to do? Or is it CAS or is it these other clubs? As a, as a freshman, you can't do any of that, but you start to think about those things. Okay. Now, when I get to be able to do this, I can do this. Me, Tony Rice, um, Arlen Harrison, we used to kind of hang a lot and keep each other encouraged. It was just a lot of fun. It's funny. My, my prep school roommate, Josh Payton, who was also a prior service as well. It was, I'd see him like once a week, but I go to his room on Saturday and be like, Hey man, what's the deal with A, B, and C? And then he'd be like, yeah, man, just do, you know, X, Y, and Z. And he, you know, I always call it like the wily veteran. I was like, JP, what are you up to today, man? Are you getting in any trouble? And so it was a lot of fun, man. A lot of fun. Max Adams was another guy I really bonded with. Really smart guy, but just had his stuff together. And I was like, man, you know, uh, what's, what do we got to do to survive next week, Max? And he laughed at me like, come on, T, let's talk. Like, so quick I enjoyed side note. it. Go ahead. Quick, quick side note on Harlan. Harlan and I were in the same uh, company for the first two years. And Harlan Harrison and Joe Harrison are not the same body type. Same body. <laughs> <laughs> and he would get my clothes all the time and I would get his clothes. And uh, that was like the running joke between Harlan and I. Nah, it's, it's the wrong Harrison. That dude was awesome. What are like those core memories from West Point that you remember? Uh -huh. Was it those moments when you're hanging with your friends in the barracks room or the locker room in between? the big events and you're reminiscing or preparing, or was it the big events? I am a extroverted introvert, which is hilarious because now I know what it means. But back then, you know, I enjoyed wherever I was at with, I enjoyed people, but it was only for a short amount of time. And then I had to go chill and just clear my mind, right. And get somewhere quiet. And the first two years, you know, in, a, I call it in Apache land, it was really once I had got through getting my freedom in terms of getting my privileges and whatnot, getting through the first year, by my yuck year, man, I was really like trying to, I was on another, hey, what do I got to do to max this thing? What do I got to do to be the best version of myself I could be? And that's when I started establishing those core relationships I come out of, I come out of West Point with, right? 
but you know, we get scrambled our sophomore year at the end and whatnot, and you get put into a different place. And for me, those first two years were formative in that I didn't do any walking tours. I was happy about that. I passed all my classes barely my first year, but my second year, I was like, oh man, I'm making B minuses and C pluses. This is good. I'm making improvements. So <laughs> I was happy about that, but I just recognized how hard it was in terms of trying to figure out, okay, now as you're starting to get your first set of plebes and how are you going to treat them? And I just remember feeling like I wanted to be almost like a big brother. But I recognized that wasn't a proper leadership style. I can say that now. Back then, I didn't know what to call it. It was like, all right, I'm going to teach them everything that I had to do. And they're going to know. And they're, you know, they're not going to get in trouble. But I, I call it like this protection mechanism. And I think it was my first kind of understanding of what it meant to be, have responsibility over a human being. And so <laughs> my first reaction was probably overcorrective of trying to make sure that even if it meant me doing it for them, I had to make sure that they were squared away, right? And over time, I learned that wasn't necessarily the right leadership style, right? You got to let people fail. And it took those, you know, those years between yucky year and senior year to kind of get that. I transitioned to F1, which Firehouse was, man, it was great. So my first year, I roomed with a uh, class of 2000 a guy, and that's when I first kind of what I called figured out what I w wanted to do as a major. So I had came to West Point funny story. I, you know, I, when I was growing up, went to high school, all I knew was I wanted to be an engineer, but I had no ideas what engineers do. So this guy comes to, you know, show and tell as most people do. And there was this guy who came to my high school. He was a chemical engineer. And I was like, that dude looks like he, he has money. I'll be a chemical engineer. It was as simple as that, man. <laughs> Just to show you how simple your thinking is. And then I got into those chemistry classes, brother, and I got broke off. <laughs> I got broke off bad. And I said, maybe I should reconsider this chemistry thing. And that was before you even, you know, declared a major. And so when you was like, okay, what am I going to do here? And so that's kind of when the internet was starting to come big and computers were coming big. And so they had just started offering at West Point information system engineering, which was a blend of you take some computer science classes, you take some system engineering classes, and you take some engineering psychology classes. And they kind of blend them all together and they call it information systems. And then you can have a, a minor within that. So everybody takes all the same core and whatnot. But that's what really kind of piqued my, oh, okay. All right, I'm going to be the tech guy. That's when it was the first kind of, moment of decision-making in terms of, I want to play with technology. So I remember like getting into those classes and, oh, okay. What is this thing called code? <laughs> Why do I have to sit here at this computer and do this and punch these numbers in here? I remember the, the hilarious part was I had, the, I only taken like a typing class as a senior in high school. So typing for me was what the, you know, was what the first digits. And that's when I first like had to two really- Two fingers at a time. Yeah, bro. <laughs> I was good with those, man. I was fast. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, sitting in my room my junior year, and I was like, man, I'm going to have to master this typing thing. And so I had to literally go back to the basics of learning how to put my fingers on the keyboards and, and do it the right way and get my speed up. That was a random kind of like goal in my junior year. But I became like the, that was the year 
that I had a transition. So in the sophomore year, I get hurt playing football, get a nice little good, you know, what I call a concussion and I hurt my knee and they were talking about doing surgery and doing all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I ain't going to do that. So tried out for the track team. And that was kind of like that kind of crisis of moments, you know, you know, between sophomore and junior year, you're have to decide if you're going to stay. My roommate in A4 had left and went to Ohio State. Very smart guy, man. And I was like, oh, man, that, you know, those thoughts of Georgia Tech start creeping up again and all those yeah. prices of conscious and everything else. But I made that decision. I made my decision about my major. And then I get to junior year and things just start falling into place, man. I start working on my leadership. I'm just a squad leader at that point. But I'm not doing anything major. But I, that's where I wanted to be. I, I was really focused on throwing and trying to be a, a good collegiate athlete and making my mark on the track team. And so that's when it kind of all clicked for me, man, and started going from there. And so those next two years were a lot of traveling, NCAAs, going to track meets, traveling, and in between that, going home. So that's how I would characterize it up until graduation. Talk me through what graduation was like and your branch choice. Good one. <laughs> Excuse me. Like most of us, I, you know, my first year I struggled at school. Second year, I kind of brought it around, but I was sitting, you know, in my, I, I guess I'm being too honest now. I was probably sitting around a two, six or a two, seven at the time. I was pretty proud of it too. I was like, man, I fought my way back. I'm going, I'm doing good. Climb <laughs> the ladder. Right. And then as I get into my major, I start getting knocked upside the head again, man. It's okay. And so that was a struggle. And so selecting a branch, when it came down to it, I knew I wasn't smart enough to get a, a, a non, what I call fighting branch, right? You're not going to get out of the infantries, the armors, the field artilleries. You're not, I wasn't, I didn't have any of those type of class ranks. So when I did... B, not B, excuse me. When I, when we, Buckner. Buckner, man, and we got to, to sample all of the different branches. One of the cool things I saw that was really interesting to me, I know random now, but field artillery, man, you fight as a crew. You have strategic importance on the battlefield that call you the king of battle. You're not, you have to be a thinker, not just a fighter. And that really appealed to me, right? You get to be a part of the strategic decision-making because you got to put fires on effect. And if you put in fires in the wrong place, it's a bad thing. And also you have to think about exposing yourself, right? And these, you know, how do you, once you start lighting those big guns up, everybody knows where you're at now. And guess what? The enemy's going to try and take you out first, right? Because they know they're not going to be around long if they don't. And I love that cat and mouse game. Talking with my peas, talking with, it just kind of was a natural fit. Field artillery was the, one of the bigger branches. A lot of football players and athletes had done field artillery before, so the precedent had been set. But you also, I'll tell you something about myself in this sense, I get bored easily doing the same thing over and over again. So while I didn't mind being dirty and, and being out in the field and, and running around and doing all that stuff, I just didn't want to do it every day, all day, if that makes sense, right? I didn't want that to be my only job. And so in field artillery, man, there's all kind of different jobs. You know, you go from not just being a platoon leader, but you look at what weapon system you're in. You can be in different weapon systems. 
You could be the guy who's with the ranger units running around the field, calling in fires from all over the place. There's just so many different aspects and so many different things that you can do in field artillery. That's what really drew me to the branch, man. And that's what I was excited to do. So for me, branch night was easy. I already knew I wanted to go field artillery. I put field artillery one, ADA two, and I think I wanted to be a tanker three. And I was like, if I could end up in those three, I'll be okay. I just knew that if it, things go really bad with my grades, there's always infantry, right? <laughs> so at the end of the day, I just gave the, I gave the government some choices. And if they had to choose for me, I knew, you know, I was resigned to the fact like I'm good, even if I get infantry. But the biggest, I'll tell you, the biggest thing I was scared about was branch night in terms of knowing, I mean, not branch night, but post night in terms of knowing where you're going. Man, was I sweat. I tell you, sitting in the room and you start to get this big board up and people are, show, you know, oh, I'll take this. And we got only so many posts. You know, I know I'm not going to Virginia, you know, to Italy, man. I'm not that smart. But I did have some preferences, if that makes sense. Preferences. I didn't want to end up in Fort Polk. I know that was just not on my radar, right? But I knew that I wanted to end up, I wanted to be somewhere that it, um, artillery was significant. I wanted to be in the division. I wanted to be in a place where artillery mattered, right? You weren't just some battalion commanders, you know, for lack of a better word, piece of work. And so it was interesting. I think I had, by the time my time came up, I had Fort Sill. I had, I could have gone to Germany. No, I couldn't even go to Germany. That was the, that was the big thing because I wanted to go to Germany. I said, if I'm going overseas, I'm going to Germany. If I'm going to stay, I wanted to go back to Georgia. I wanted to go to Fort Benning and I mean, Fort Stewart. That's where I wanted to go. And they were like, nope. You had some crap choices, man. He couldn't even get Stewart. I was like, are you kidding me? Like for real? So my first duty station was Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Fort Silly, I call it. But it was great for me growing up as a city kid. And I guess... You tell me if you want me to talk about graduation specifically, but I'll tell you, like, once I got to Fort Sill, man, life was totally different. I'll stop now and let you guide me directly. You want to talk about graduation itself or is that pretty good? No, I mean, we're good. And you got me kind of crying for Sill. Is there anything key that you want to talk about with graduation then before we I think for me, graduation was just a celebration. A small nugget was that my parents didn't get to visit that, you know, my, my mom was a single mom growing up and then she got remarried. And, and so to have my family there was a, just a, an event I couldn't even pass up. I got, my father came, which was a big kind of segue into just relationships and maturity, kind of got reintroduced to him as a man and graduation was that seminal moment of, okay, let's reintroduce ourselves as individuals. But graduation was just a pure ecstasy of joy. And I tell people I left, <laughs> I threw my hat up in the air and I know I'm being facetious now, but I don't, I didn't see my hat drop. I was already at the gate <laughs> gone. I, I did not want to come back to West Point anytime soon, man. I was done. I didn't want to have to. It was like PTSD before PTSD, right? I was like, I'm out of here before somebody finds a reason to keep me here. I drove home and came home and, and then I, and then I drove out to Fort Sill, man. That was awesome. Me and my mother, man, just 
me and her, you know, sad when you can think about all your stuff can be packed up in like a truck. <laughs> That's all you own. <laughs> two trunks and two barracks bags. Yeah, man. That's that was all I had to my name at the but I didn't care, man. I didn't care. But yeah, that was it. I will tell you that for me, I, I I wasn't poor growing up or anything else like that, but I will tell you the the first time I saw the cow loan, I almost fainted. I can't lie to you. <laughs> so I had I had a big fascination about learning about money. And I think it started with the cow loan and like, how am I supposed to handle all these thousands of dollars? I gotta go, I gotta go educate myself, man. So I, I was doing everything I could to keep my money for when I got to sale so I could do whatever I need to do and pay for whatever I need to pay for because I had no clue what I was getting myself into. You talk about that culture shock or that, that change in environment. You went from Georgia to high humidity, trees, some mountains, and then you go up to New York again, same thing, high humidity, trees, some mountains, and then you go to Oklahoma and it's flat, it's barren, it still gets hot as hell and it still gets cold as hell. What was that like? I, it was quiet and that scared me. <laughs> Growing up as a city kid and even at West Point, man, there was just, you know, you could, there was always something even on the river or you could always hear something going on a train or something. I grew up with those sounds in my background. They were just part of my life story, man. Even in Atlanta, you got airplanes going over your head, you know, the train, all that stuff. So when I get to Oklahoma, man, that first night, I'm like, I hear nothing and it's pitch black. There's no city lights. You know, you get on the highway, yeah, they got lights here and there and stuff. But I mean, you look out at, at Fort Sill at night, it is pitch black. There's nothing. And I was like, oh snap, what have I got myself into? I think Fort Sill as a place was my first introduction to what I call Midwest culture, right? The, you could leave your door open and no one cared. They, they didn't, you know, to be honest, you know, you live in a town, it's all army people. But outside of that, man, I'm, you're talking about hundreds of people. You know, I'm from cities where there's millions of people, right? There's always something. The good time is at Walmart instead of a club, right? That's kind of, you know, <laughs> where are you going to go? Well, I'm going to go to Walmart. That's where everybody else is at. So I'm going to go hang out there, you know? Yeah, you know. But I remember it was my first time having to have, I got to choose my own roommate. That was big for me. So I was thinking I was big and bad. You know, I'd save a little of my cow money and stuff like that. And I was going to buy me a house, brother. And I was like, nope, that didn't happen. I had to first get through basic, right? I had to get through officer basic course, right? So in my mind, I was like, well, will they let me? I can go ahead and buy a house and then I'm good. Nope. You're going to stay here until you graduate OBC. And I was like, but I'm going to PCS here. I did all the tricks I could, man, trying to get some privileges. And I was like, just like, nope. But one of the things I, I thought about, I had a good crew of field artillery guys with me, right? I mean, we, we speak of guys like Harlan, right? I had these guys, you know, we had been together for all this time. Anyways, Leandre, Anthony, we were all field artillery guys, man. You know, I was just like, okay, I, I you know, we're here. We're going to, we did all right. And I remember, you know, first time you get to kind of, all right, well, no one's checking for you to be in your room at a certain time. So what are you going to do now? Oh, we're going to go crazy. It's going to be fun. So we had some good times, man. But I realized really quickly that I couldn't do both. <laughs> Can't have the good times and get wake up the next morning and PT all day and then do it again for five days straight. 
I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. So I had to get that out of my system. I did, and it was good. But I, I call OBC time sobering me up. But once I got out of OBC, man, Fort Sill became like a little small family. It was quiet. It was quaint. I had some 99 guys who were my fraternity brothers that were already there. And, you know, we just all lived together. Bought a house and everybody got a room. And that was it until they PCS'd. And then, you know, next thing you know, I'm the last one in the house because I was the youngest. I was the baby of the group. And then I buy the house, right? So that was my first kind of foray into real estate and understanding that. But things were so cheap. I couldn't believe the rent, man. You know, I think I paid like $400 in rent. I haven't seen that kind of rent ever for the rest of my life. <laughs> but it, I know it exists, right? In Oklahoma, you could, at that time, you could rent a place for 400 bucks, man. And, and it was actually a nice, decent place, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so just those Midwestern values, a lot of great mentors, but I'll stop there before I get you into my first assignments and all that other stuff like that. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask next is what happened next for you after Sill? Well, I will tell you at Sill, after OBC, 9-11 happens. And um, all I did was pack up my stuff, drove my truck that I had just bought Actually, I didn't. No, I still had a car then. So I had bought a car after OBC. You know, you graduate in June. OBC's what? Until November, right? 9-11 happens. We're at the schoolhouse. We see it all. And everybody's apprehensive. Everybody's like, all right, it's time to gear up and get ready. And I remember they were like, yeah, they're like, LT, if you're going past go, you're going to meet your unit in Iraq. I didn't even get to do all the other things, right? So my first deployment, I think I left in December, yeah, December of 2001. I'm in Iraq. So imagine that kind of year, right? You have your highs in terms of graduating from West Point. You got all this transition. You finally get to a place where you're like, okay, I'm going to be here for a few years so I can get settled and moved in. And before you even unpack, they're like, yep, go meet your unit in place. I was like, oh, okay, this is how the army works. And I got my first taste of that desert sand and I was there for 18 months. And it was no joke. I, I tell you, my first deployment was tough. It was informative. It was the first and only time I lost people in battle, but we had some really good fighting and it, it's, it matured me quick. I always call Iraq my second home because of the amount of years I spent over there and between Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, just, it's, it's crazy to think about, but yeah, I think my first experience in Oklahoma was like, yep, put your stuff down. Don't pass. Go. We'll see you later. I picked up my platoon sergeant and I'll tell you this. So the first part of the war, you know, is what you kind of think of that classic, we land in Kuwait. And we're battling our way up through Iraq, through Al-Najef, all those great cities that you think about. And I remember, man, about six months in, we get to the Capitol and then I'm eating in the chow hall and I see President Bush on an aircraft carrier out in the Middle East talking about the war is over. And I was like, what? They still shooting over here? What are you talking about? I, you know, you would think, okay. You're field artillery, so you're going to do these kind of missions where you're shooting and doing all. Nah, man. Because of the ROE and everything else in the towns, 
we were we got turned into infantry pretty quick. So I remember hooking up. I had to do these deals with my friends. You know, I had some classmates that were engineers. I was like, hey, man, I'll give you some parts for your Humvees if you dig us some holes where we can, you know, sleep nice at night <laughs> and give us some porta potties, man. You know, those type of deals. I remember getting the opportunity to, I got hooked up with a, a Navy SEAL group that was EOD. And they came in, I had to take care of those guys and we went around the country hunting for ammunition. And so we lived in bunker to bunkers, man. You know, those old Saddam bunkers get blown up and everything and having to first fight your way in, make sure everything is good and secure and then find the munitions and blow them up. And then we're off to the next spot. So I spent six months running around, you know, being EOD support, you know, on the ground. Can't necessarily point your field artillery at people. <laughs> But I remember having to draw up some missions, some raids that we had to do, going through people's houses and stuff like that. That was like, wow, you know. And I remember, like, thinking, I'm so thankful I went to West Point, man. Because all this stuff, the tactics, the kind of what was going on in the ground and how that was integrated. I think I didn't get to do real field artillery stuff probably until the last three months when we were kind of, it was hilarious, right? You know, so I mentioned that time and point where George Bush is on the, He's, oh, yeah, the war is over. And then we were like, no, it ain't. And we were still like, okay, well, are we going home? And nope, we weren't going home. You know, I think the mission just changed to go find Saddam, right? And all the intel and everything else and running around the country. But I remember flowing into some Iraqi towns, man, and knowing like, all right, guys, we're not going to drive our equipment through here. We're going to go around this town because this is just a death trap waiting to happen. And getting and having to rely on your gut sometimes and listen to your intuition and trusting your judgment and making the calls, you know, knowing what the mission is and understand you still got to complete it, but how you get there and, and the way you do it is up to you. And that was big. That was big for me. That experience you talked about earlier when you were at West Point and learning how to lead, did you feel prepared? Or were you continually learning throughout that deployment? I will say this. I was, I could tell the difference between my training and background and others. I, you know, I, I'll say ROTC, but I, I won't like pretty quickly. My, my company commander at the time, you know, his XO, uh, no right or wrong thing, but he was like, Houston, what do you think? And I wasn't, I was like, oh, you're asking me my opinion? <laughs> and he was a West Pointer too. I remember he's a brigadier general now, but I remember having those conversations with him. He's, I know what you're made of. I know where, where you come from. I value your opinion. Say, you know, open your mouth and tell us what you think, what you, what's your assessment of the situation. And I was like, after that, I was like, all right, let's go. Right. And having that, what I call creative leadership being given to me that those keys to the reins of what my team needed to do to accomplish the mission was exciting. It was, I'll call it an adrenaline pump, but it wasn't like a bunch of guys running around trying to look for fights. So I, I want to paint it the right way. And, you know, it, it, it was a lot of growing up real fast with, so my platoon sergeant at the time, he was at E7. He had been in the military for 16, 17 years. So it was just a matter of time before he made first sergeant, right? And one of the things I remember about him was 
he was like, LT, I, I trust you, but when you make your decision, just let me execute. And when we had that kind of relationship going and we were rocking and rolling and I was able to give intent and I was able to give orders and he was able to pick it up and put it down, man, I tell you, it was like, I, 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 I can't describe it, but it, you know, I, I, it's likened to a marriage, right? You and this individual are literally like, where are we going to sleep? Where are we going to eat? Where are we going to resupply? How are we going to execute this mission? What it's a trust man that develops that, that rhythm and man, was it beautiful when it got to going, we didn't know it at the time and how I, I wouldn't say it was unique, but I would just say for a first time, you know, in the army, it's very much pick up, go, here's your new guy and you go make, you guys figure out how you work and you may like each other, you may not. But with him, me, him and I was like, Hey man, I don't know everything. So if you got things you need to say, let me know. Let's take it off to the side so our, our guys don't see us. But if you got things you need to say, let's go say it. And he appreciated that, right? But when he knew, when I made my, when I made my decision, it was time to rock, man. It, I'll let you get your was, say in. Yeah. But, but after it, that, it was, was one like, of those, let's go. It was one of those unique moments in life, especially that first year in Iraq. Yeah. Because it really was the Wild West. And it was so disaggregated and so decentralized. You had platoon leaders, platoon sergeants, company commanders that had enormous responsibilities, but also the latitude to execute within their judgment. And when you did that well, it was very hard to go back to the United States and go back yes. to Garrison. Yes. It was very hard to go back to the method that you trained under and the method that you were developed under. Because you could see, man, this is what I could do if they just released the rigs. I, I, I fell in love with the army my first deployment. I'll tell you that. And this is from coming from a guy who didn't do 20 years, right? But I fell in love with the army at that moment. It was like, I don't know. It was just like life. And it was scary. It was, it was dirty. It was hot. But it was life, man. And guys... I remember we, we did a, I'll, I'll tell you this one. I'll try and be brief about it. So I had, I, I remember my battalion commander had this mission that had to be executed post haste. Right. And it was an infantry mission. It wasn't a field artillery mission, but he's, he comes down to Bravo battery who's, you know, we were called the bulldogs, but we thought we were the best. And you know, you know, the bravado that everybody has at that time, right. Still has, but you know, we thought we were the best company in the battalion and, and Gus, I thought I had the best platoon and the best company in the battalion. So yeah, battalion commander sat me down. He's here's a marker. Here's some paper. Here's my intent. What are you going to do? And the command sergeant major sitting there, my, my company commander sitting there and he's, yo, you got it. Before I let you this go, you got to prove to me why I'm going to let you go execute this mission. And it was like selection Sunday. It was like the draft. It's, <laughs> oh man, you know, I got everybody's, hey, sir, I ain't going to tell you, but don't mess this up. You know, and they use other words <laughs> and I, and that's what it was. And but lo and behold, we get the mission. Everybody's hype and we go in and we do our thing, man. And it was pandemonium, but it was successful. It was a successfully executed mission. And everybody was just really excited and happy that we got to run. The mission from the battalion commander. He came down and personally make sure y'all wasn't going to mess it up. So 
the stories like that is what really, okay, I can do this. I can be an officer in the United States Army. I can, I can lead people. I can do hard things. That's that, those are those moments of realization. Talk me through the redeployment and then your PCS to South Korea. What was that like? By then I had already had two deployments to Iraq, one Afghanistan. So in the first five years of my military service, I had been deployed three times. I think I spent maybe one and a half, let's, let's call it, let's call it somewhere between one and a half and two years total in CONUS tops in five years. I was gone that much. So by the time I get to the captain's career course, I didn't know it, but you know, I had a pretty high self-esteem at that moment in that time. And one of the things that you kind of go through, I had already had a command before I even got to captain's career course. My company commander for my, one of my deployments had the PCS and leave. And they were like, all right, you know, I was a first lieutenant at the time. I was the XO. They was like, you're in charge. And I was like, what? Okay. And they didn't have another captain come in in time for us to do what we needed to do. So I had already been in command of a company for almost a year before they let me go and come home and go to captain's career course. So I come back to captain's career course, I pin, I do all of those things and I'm loving life. Right. I get to be home for a little bit I get to, you know, be clean, even though it's a classroom setting, we got international students from all over, but the, you know, the guys are, they're all vets. We're all combat, you know, been there, done that kind of guys. And, you know, in the classroom, we're going at it and everything else like that. And all that's to say is, you know, coming out and graduating from Cabbage career course, it's not a big thing, but usually everybody's excited to go do your command and go to your next assignment. Well. I was supposed to go to hood and that's was, that's where I thought I was going. And the week before I was getting ready to PCS, go to hood, I get a call from a Colonel and he's, Hey, I'm going to talk to you real quick. I'm Colonel so-and-so I'm calling you from Korea and this is going to be a really quick call, but I, I, I need a decision today. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, I have a spot here in the United Nations military command. And I was looking at records guys, and I want you to come. I was like, oh, I'm in, <laughs> let's go. I didn't even ask no questions. I didn't know what it was going to be like. I was like, what are we doing? I had no idea. I was so naive, man. And so all I knew is, you know, I was like, Hey guys, sorry. I'll see y'all on the other side. I'm rocking. I'm leaving. So I show up. Well, first I go home, tell everybody I'm going to Korea and everybody's like, what? You haven't been home yet. What are you talking about? I thought you was going to actually get to be home for a minute. Nope. <laughs> going to Korea. And they're like, what are you going to do? I don't know, but it's, you know, it's going to be fun. I'll be all right. And I was at a point in my life, I was still single. I had no, I wasn't married or anything else like that. So I just was like rocking with whatever the military threw at me. You know, it was like, yeah, whatever. Just I'll chew on the bullet and spit it out. Cool. Let's do it. I show up in Korea, man. And the XO for the unit, a Lieutenant Colonel comes up to me. He's a Marine. That freaked me out. I didn't even ask if it was joint. I didn't ask none of that, man. This is how naive I was. 
I knew it was, I knew it was a pretty prestigious command because I know most people who had talked about who had been to Korea that was in my captain's career course, they were like, oh yeah, you go to KC, you can go to these places and do these things. And I really thought, okay, well, you know, I thought I was going to do something like that, but nope. I get off the plane. They're like, oh yeah, we got to put you on another plane. We're going to, we're going to take you up to the JSA. I was like, the what? Show up in the JSA, and I knew Korea was a single man assignment, but you know, I literally had a team of Air Force, Marines, Army, Navy, and you go from fighter to politician. And it took me three months. I tell you, it took me three months to get this out of my head because I was like, wait a minute, we not fighting, fighting? And no. I need you to protect the border, but not engage because technically we're still at war. And, you know, and I was like, man, I got to educate myself, kind of educate myself. So I was getting everything on Korean history, the culture, understanding how they came up, the divide between the two countries, the background. How do we get here? You know, understanding the politics between China and the U.S. and Russia and understanding, you know, like. This country technically hasn't only been around as a country for 50 plus years. It's still a baby, right? You know, they still learning how to drive, right? Once I got into that mode, man, talk about the switch having to turn again and having to pick up. And so really what I find the United Nations did for me was expose me to a different culture. It took me out of warrior and took me into warrior scholar, right? Yeah, I still had to be ready to fight. I still had to have a team that was ready to go, but it wasn't like we was, you know, handing out guns at the border every day, right? It was, you had your side piece and during the day you're giving tours to generals, to attaches from different countries from all over the world, telling the situation. And then at night you run an ops. And I was like, this is crazy, but I really, I, you know, the funny thing I really realized was when I was sitting in a situation room and my counterpart on the rock side was a lieutenant colonel and I'm a captain and I'm in charge of the room, not the lieutenant colonel. The U.S. captain is in charge of the room. That's when I knew, oh, OK, <laughs> this is international exchange at its finest and recognizing the importance of now I need a different leadership style because. I need to now understand what saving face means. I'm not the American rough rider coming in here, telling everybody what to do. I had to learn some diplomacy about myself and having to understand, even though I'm in charge of this place and y'all going to do what I say, me and the colonel are going to have a discussion first. We're going to go in his office and we're going to have some tea and then I'm going to tell him what to do. And I'm going to allow him to tell y'all what to do. That was like, oh, okay, we playing chess now. It's a different kind of discussion, right? And then as soon as that happened, about seven or eight months in, they're like, okay, you're doing good. Now we need you to come back to the headquarters, which is in Seoul, and we need you to now run operations down here. So my Marine major gets promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. He becomes the XO and I becomes the ops guy. Essentially the S3 for a small, you know, unit, but... Mm -hmm. Who gets to say they were the S3 of a unit as a captain, you know? 
you, these type of experiences, I can only say is only happens when you're in war or you're doing these extraordinary things, right? These unique situations. But as a young man, talk about formative, talk about opportunity, talk about, man, I just fell in love with it. We would, you know, I, the funny story is it was the first kind of foray and, you know, I'm a techie guy. So I had Vonage, which was kind of like the first IP phone. And it's, I, t I gave my family the 770 number that they could call me, but they didn't realize the time difference. So at least once a week, somebody from my family would wake me up at three o'clock in the morning, calling me like, Hey, how you doing? All because it's, you know, three in the afternoon, their time and, and having to recognize like, Hey, I'm going to let you know that it's kind of late here. So I'm kind of zonked, but yeah, I'm doing great. Having a good time, you know? And doing all of that type of stuff. So it was this great synergy, man, I got um, to see and travel. So when I got into the ops role, we had to travel a lot more. So it was more what I call suit and tie time. It wasn't wearing your fatigues and doing all that type of stuff. So we traveled to China, Philippines, Thailand, and we did New Zealand, Australia. It was just really different, really different. At that point. I mean, you're still hitting these high notes. The army's still showing you uh, how much is out there and the scope and breadth of what a 20-year career could look like. But your service obligation has ended. Yeah. Talk me through your decision on staying in the army or transitioning out. It, it was interesting because uh, through all of that, those experiences, I had really matured as a man. I had really had an opportunity to grow as an individual. I had a lot of chance to read and write and understand uh, a lot more about who I was and my focus. I will tell you a formative moment for me. I was on, I was on leave back to the United States in 2004 and we were only home for a week, but I rededicated my life to Christ um, and really started to understand and take ownership of my faith, not as a because this is just what my family did, but this is because of what I've chose and what I plan to do. And I wanted to have a closer relationship with Christ and, and understand who he was. And, and at this point, um, I was really into understanding about the selfless, like we as West Pointers, it's a life of time of service, both in the uniform and outside the uniform and starting to understand what that meant, right? having these opportunities to travel, having these opportunities. And just, I get to see different opportunities of what people were doing. Old Lieutenant Colonels who still were, you know, expats living in Korea or living in the Philippines or doing all, you know, I'm talking to these guys as I'm doing these operations, right. And getting to see their perspective of, you know, life outside the uniform and what it could be. But ultimately, man, the decision came down to this. I had, this was the first time I got an opportunity to take, send my mother anywhere. She had never left the country, didn't even have a passport. And so I wanted her to really get an opportunity to travel and just be a part of the experience. And so I worked really hard to get her a flight, get her a passport, make sure she had everything. But I was scared to be honestly that she wouldn't come. And so get her over to West, get over to Korea. Long story short, one of my former West Point friends was Alicia Bryan at that time. And at that time I needed someone to help to get my mother over to Korea. And so I'm a, I'm a push forward and give you the summary, but 
unbeknownst to me, God is bringing me my wife. Class of 2000, beautiful soul. But she had, you know, been to Belgium, been in Germany and ran a, she was a quartermaster and did all of that stuff for a living. And, you know, when you got connections at West Point, you know everybody, you know what they do. So I was like, hey, I need somebody. She was actually living in Georgia, two traffic lights away from my mother. So I was like, hey, I need you to get my mother on this plane. Like, she, I know she's scared. Sure enough, my mom's like, a week out. She's like, I'm not going. What do you mean you're not going? I'm literally it's like having, you know, nice, loud conversations with my mother because you can't call an argument with your mother, right? It's done. We're going to, you're coming. And so I had Alicia bring her. And I was like, hey, I'm paying for your ticket. Come on over. I brought her over and my mom. She got on the flight. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know my mom was scared of flying. It's just, it was just the way it was. And I, you know, you don't ask those questions when you're younger. It just didn't come up in conversation. So I didn't know she was afraid of flying. So, you know, now I do. But she get her over there. Long story short, she tells me, and this is the crux of the, the answer to your question of why I got out. Have a good time. Get to show her the, around town. And like the day before she's leaving, she's like, hey, your little brother. My, my youngest brother is 15 years apart from me. So at that time, you know, he's, you know, in teenage years and he's starting to have that, you know, grown man chest and starting to do stupid stuff. And she's, your brother is not doing well, not in school, not in life, not in anything. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was just giving me the whole backstory. Long story short is that's why I got out. It wasn't because I didn't love the army or I was tired of it or anything else like that. But I had grown in my faith enough to know that the army was a job at the end of the day. And then if I let, if I go conquer the whole world and lose my family, then what was the point of it all? And so for me, it, that was the decision. All right, ma, I'm coming home. I dropped my paperwork. I was headed back to hood and I dropped my paperwork and they were like, no, you can't. We got another, you know, all these plans for you. They offered me everything, man. Another command. They was like, hey, you know, do you want to do reserves? Do you, what, what do you want to do? What's, what job do you want? Come on. Like, we got plans for you. And I was like, nope, going to go take care of my family, man. I can't lose my brother to life and the influences that are life just to say that I had a cool, lifelong army career. And that was a decision. So I've dropped my paperwork. And at that time, because I had already done my obligation and I was, I think I was seven years in. They were like, you sure? I mean, you're going to lose your retirement and all that stuff. I was like, no, I'll figure out how to make money. That's not a problem. Right. But once I made that decision, man, six weeks later, man, I was back home in Atlanta, Georgia, jobless on my mother's couch, talking about <laughs> how I'm going to make this work. And I had to follow her rules too. No, I can't be going in and out of the house. I had to respect. I had to find me a job, had to figure out what I wanted to be, grow up. It was a big transition. You know, it's funny. The army prepared me even for that in the sense that you never got comfortable anywhere too long, right? You never get to sit anywhere too long anyway. Career is like my last hurrah. But when I got and was on my mother's couch, I was like, this is crazy. Talk about going all the way back to the bottom. So did um, you get that, a job? Yeah, I got a job. That took, <laughs> got a job I'm, I'm not talking to you on your mom's couch right now, am I? Yeah, man. So <laughs> the conversation went like this. All right. I like technology. 
but I'm not going to be sitting behind a computer coding stuff and doing, I didn't want to do that anymore. My eyes were open now, man, brother. I like people, man. And it, and then I recognized the theme that had kind of been running throughout the tread that God kind of put me on in the sense that this thread of life is, you know, I got to change from chemical engineering to information system engineering degree. I was like the, the tech guy for the battalion. I, you know, when I was in, when I was a first lieutenant, I ran the tactical center for our company, right? And we got like top POC and all that other stuff. And so these are kind of like formative moments, but they were, they were pinned by my ability to take technology and do things with them. And so I enjoyed tinkering with things, right? And I knew that. So I got to working on my networks, brother. You know, we call up, I go to all the West Point Society events. I start, who's here in Atlanta? And start making those calls and start forming relationships. And long story short is I, my first job was as a project manager for a EDI company called Anovis, which doesn't exist anymore. I think the company's owned by GE now, but they were up in Alpharetta and I would literally commute from my mother's uh, on Mondays, drive my truck 45 minutes to the north side of Atlanta, park my truck up there, go to work, take the train back home and sleep on the couch and then get back up and get a ride to the MARTA station or the, the, the train station in the morning and do it all until Friday. And then I would leave at two o'clock on Friday and drive home before the traffic. And that was my first year of having a job as a project manager in some kind of company doing something around technology and, and people and just trying to get in the base of what I call project management, which is essentially the um, taking, finding the value and transformation of things and putting customers on. But what I find was just establish myself as a reputable project manager. I went back to school. I went and got a master's. I went to Villanova University. Funny story is I was taking classes when I was at Fort Sill and then I got interrupted. And so I never finished my master's. And so I went and finished my Fort, my, my MBA at Oklahoma and graduated. And then I went to Villanova um, and was like, hey, I need to understand project management and technology. And so that's what I did. I did an intense course. So it was like nine months. And then you you graduate. So that's, you know, all I did was eat, sleep and study. And then they, the company let me come back. I said, look, I'm just going to go. I'm going to improve myself. I'm going to make sure that I have the tools that I need to be a successful employee and, you know, come back to my job. And they were like, yeah, cool. So I went and got my education, went and got my PMP and started family, man. And that was the, that was it. I was rocking and rolling. After about a year, I got my feet under me. And I was like, okay, I got married and we were like starting a life, man, back here in Atlanta around my family. So it was awesome. Thinking back on that journey, growing up in Atlanta, going to the military academy, going to the prep school before that, and then joining the military. What tools did you pick up? What skills did you pick up that have helped you along the path of those? Um, first thing that pops into mind is to be a lifetime learner. One of the things I got in, <laughs> I learned very quickly in the military was if you really wanted to get away with something, then you better know the regs better than everybody else. <laughs> so I knew where the lines were, but I also knew where the lines that I shouldn't cross, right? I made sure that I understood the regs and that helped me in a lot of different places because a lot of times when you walk into a company, 
you walk into the culture of history of whatever was built up, regardless of what the book says. So-and-so does it this way, so that's just the way it's supposed to be done. Well, who said it has to be done that way? So-and-so said it does done this way, then that's the way. Well, who is so-and-so? And you come to find <laughs> out if you keep going back far enough, that person either doesn't work for the company or didn't really care. It was just a patch for the moment that they were dealing with the thing that they were dealing with at the time. And so getting through the human behavior, the, what I call the human factors, that engineering psychology helped me a lot. Those system engineering and saying, all right, I got a team of engineers and they want to talk code to me and try and code speak me, I call it. And I say, okay, it's cool, but come tomorrow, I'll know if you're lying to me, right? You know that. I'm just letting them know. And <laughs> sure enough, there's a few who tried, and, you know, I had to bust them up a, a couple of times, but that resilience and understanding that I don't need to know everything, but I, what I do know and what I do say, I need to reinforce, right? I always say you trust, but verify that that stuck with me, right? That ability to say, I'm going to give you this opportunity to show me what you can do, but I'm going to verify that you actually did it and not trust that you just said you did it. And I think bringing that style, um, those formative years, that leadership style, that leadership philosophy. I started to get my own personal leadership philosophy, which was provide purpose, direction, and motivation to people while doing it in a caring and committed way, right? I'm not going to let the gas off. If I got to go to your office and sit at your office until you get this task done, so be it. I was that guy. I, we have a great time, but I wasn't leaving until that task is done, right? They were like, oh, don't you got to go home? I was like, I'll go home when the task is done. I think that bringing that kind of leadership was different. But I also had to learn that there's a tool called influence and indirect leadership that I had to bring to bear that I, you know, in the civilian world, I had to turn off the, you're just going to do it because I told you to do it. <laughs> and if you don't, I'm going to fire you kind of attitude to, yes, please. Can you get this done? And then follow up. Hey, did you get this done? And then if you didn't, all right, these are the consequences if we don't get this done. Okay. And then at the end of the day, I've asked you nicely. I've given you a warning. And at the end, you still didn't do it. I had, as you know about most of us, brother, I had no qualms about handling my business. Let's just my wife likes to say, yeah, you came, you left the United States with a soul and you came back with no soul. <laughs> you did not care. You were, you know, that guy, I just, whatever needed to be done needed to be done and we can have a good time doing it or we can't have a good time doing it but it's your decision and that's what i told people and that's how i explain it to people it's your decision how we interact we can have a good time and we can get things done or we can have a bad time and get things done but it's still going to get done so i think that kind of attitude was very helpful but that lifetime learning that system engineering this thing connects to that thing and how does it influence the, i call it the if then statements of life and understanding how a business works and building that kind of knowledge and background, all of that help came from the West Point and the challenges of, yeah, so what do you work late or so what you get up early? And it prepared me for the type of leadership that I kind of experience and do now where I'm leading a global team and my team in Malaysia is 12 hours ahead of me. So I get up at 4.30 in the morning every day on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays. Why? So I can keep, uh, so I can establish and keep a relationship with my Malaysia team. And you know who else is getting up? 
in Europe. I have a team in Europe. So they're getting up. It's the middle of their day. And then my team in America is in Mexico and the United States. They're getting up with me. And we're all meeting at 5 a.m. So we can get that opportunity to crosstalk. So no one feels like they're alone in a silo. So no one feels, well, he doesn't care about me. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Right? You got to show that compassionate and caring leadership, but you also got to show that you're willing to do the work just like anybody else. And I think that was um, a key to my success. As we wrap up the interview, is there anything you'd want to say to the class? For me, I, I just want to say, man, do I love our class. I'm going to start with that. We have some of the most caring, committed classmates. And I can say, you know, I, I'm meeting with, JP, Josh Payton this weekend, he's over the veterans PGA, Ryan Buckner, one of my best friends at school. He's now here in Atlanta, Georgia, me and him are meeting, meeting up in next weekend, me and Tony Rice. It's just, man, you could be gone for 20 years and it's, we can just pick it up just like that. And I appreciate all the, just how we can do that. I want to give a shout out to my man, Dave Park, who's still out there fighting the fight doing his, his green hat thing. And I'll give, you know, I show him love. He's trying to figure out what his next steps are, but it's just as a class, love. Carly Romano, Dave Ulaut. I mean, just, I'm just naming names now, but I, you know, at, at the end of the day, these guys, man, just friends for life. And Joe, I just want to say, I appreciate all that you do for us in making these, right? Like for me, Man, what a cool idea, but you had the fortitude to do it and want to do it. So I thank you for that and being just thankful that you're my classmate, man, and that we can share this time together in fellowship. Really enjoyed that. It's, it's really cool to hear the journeys because we may have an Instagram view or a LinkedIn view or a Facebook view of someone's life, but to be able to listen to them for 60 to 90 minutes, talk about the struggles, the successes the hows and the whys, you get a deeper insight that you, you'll never get off of one of those social medias and you may not get the time in a reunion or just a brief instance at a party or at army Navy in uh, Philadelphia. It's really cool to be able to share that with the I agree. I agree. It, it, and to me, it's going to be a lasting gift. It's going to be a part of the experiences. I, I can't wait to have my sons and daughters listen to this, right? That's a, the generational kind of thing I think is a great opportunity with this kind of project, right? I was thinking about this and talking with my wife. I said, you know, no matter what, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, how well I do on this, it is a mark in time that, you know, I never received from my grandparents. I just remember who they were in my memory, in my mind, but wouldn't it have been cool to be able to have a, something that is uh, lasting of them like this? where they can tell us in their own words what their experiences were and who they were as people. That's the opportunity I think about, that generational opportunity to pass on something of the essence of who I am to my children and to my family. That's a blessing. It's very rare that you get to hear directly from the words of the person that you want to know about without a filter, without an editor. And thank you for sharing that today. Oh yeah, my pleasure. You know, I, I can imagine there's some people who are nervous and I guess I would be, say I'm nervous too, but I, you know, you do such a good job. It's, it's, it's easy, but um, for me, it's, I just want our 
I want our classmates to be proud of us, man. Um, there's still a little competition in there. I know that, you know, you go and look <laughs> out and see what other people are doing and, oh, oh okay. But um, you just want them to be proud of us. Man. We're all great people and we have so much to share with the world. So I'm thankful for every, each and every one. Again, thank you very much, Terrence. And you have a great night. You too, Joe. Take care. Till so, so duty is done. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.